Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Connected Family Podcast, episode number five. This podcast is produced by Connections Family Counseling, LLC, a group counseling practice located in Quincy, Illinois, that helps build resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. My name is Mark Vanderlei, and I'm your host. Today's episode is all about the shifting view of fatherhood. Let's begin now our discussion about the shifting view of fatherhood. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic and discussing it with you because it is one of my passions, and actually I discussed it just a little bit in the previous podcast episode where I talked about parenting styles, and they're connected because uh, in the last year I had the wonderful opportunity to complete my dissertation, and the shifting view of fatherhood played a pretty significant role in that dissertation. So the dissertation title was The Relationship Between Father Emotional Intelligence and Parenting Style. And some of the reading that I did, in addition to parenting styles and emotional intelligence, had to do with this idea of the shifting view of what it means to be a father. There's actually some contradictions uh, that are happening right now in our culture in regards to fatherhood and manhood, where there are whole segments of society that are pushing and moving towards um, a new way or a new expectation for what it means to be a father. And then there are other other, um, parts of society that don't seem to be moving in that direction or are maybe struggling to go along with that and to see what the new vision of fatherhood looks like. And so I thought it'd be helpful to discuss that and maybe even to think about, okay, so if we're in this place of contradiction or in this place of seeming conflict, how do we move forward? What can we do with how we're raising our boys and even our daughters and how we um, are as men and fathers? So the contradiction looks like this. In the research and the reading I did for my dissertation, it's very evident that more and more fathers live separately from their children than ever before. So research about fatherhood absence really began after World War II because researchers were concerned about all these fathers who had gone to World War II and either did not come back or were gone for long periods of time. And so they began to research outcomes for children. What happens when a child um, does not have the presence of their father for long periods of time? And they found that it doesn't go very well, that the involvement of a father is really, really important, Um, even when it is in the context of having gone away to fight in the war or even death. And so those losses can have significant impacts on school, relational issues, even whether or not this child ends up um, in jail or, or experiencing alcoholism. In more recent decades, however, the research related to fatherhood absence has focused more on other factors that create father absence as opposed to fighting in a war, obviously because um, smaller segments of the male population have gone off to fight in wars, although it's very significant, and the impact of fighting in the recent wars does have significant impact on our culture. It hasn't been as much of a focus of the research recently. Uh, More recently, um, the research has focused on the causes of things such as um, divorce, cohabitation rates, uh, particularly imprisonment, because 
uh, when fathers are imprisoned, it has a significant impact on outcomes for children and the father's, of course, ability to be involved in the lives of their children. So what the statistics are showing is that the percentage of fathers who live separately for, from their children is like 25%. 25% of fathers live separately from their children. And it boils down to one of the, those reasons, you know, divorce, uh, imprisonment, education, and some of those factors. There are others, but those are some of the factors that contribute to that. But... On the other hand, there is a whole nother side of research that is also demonstrating that it seems like the perception or the idea of what it means to be a good father is really shifting in our culture. So just one little statistic that might be helpful in framing this for you is that some of the research has shown that in the before the 1970s, the average amount of time that a father spent with their children per week was 2.6 hours. However, in more recent decades, uh, maybe the 1990s and moving forward, the, the, that average amount of time that a father spent with their child per week w went up to 6.5 hours. Now, 6.5 hours really isn't all that much time when you think about the number of hours in a day times seven days a week, and probably it's not that much time compared to the amount of time that most mothers spend with their child. But what I'm really focused on here and what I think the research is showing is that there's this general trend towards increased amount of time, increased involvement of fathers in the lives of their children. And so I'm really honestly confused and intrigued by this juxtaposition of this idea of more and more fathers living separately from their children, and yet fathers spending more and more time with their children per week. So are those the same fathers, those same fathers that live separately from their children, even though they're living separately, they are still spending more time? Or is this a different group of fathers that we're talking about? So as I began to look into these ideas and research, try to understand what does it mean to be a good father? One, for myself, because I'm passionate about being a father and um, desire to know how I can best influence my children's lives but also to help other fathers to know what they can do and how they can interact with their children in a way um, that is helpful and sets them up for success in the future. And so what I found is a whole line of research that talks about the history of fatherhood and the different motifs, you might say, of the idea of good fatherhood. And so that uh, history was really given by a researcher by the last name of Lamb, and he talks about four different motifs that have occurred over the course of the last century or maybe to 150 years um, of, about what it means to be a good father. And so the first one that we talk about is moral teacher or guide, and this really was the sort of ideal way of being a father during the time of the Puritan, Puritans. And so the moral teacher or guide, this father was the one who was able to pass on his faith, and usually Christian faith at the time, Christian faith to his children. His children followed the rules of the Christian faith. His children knew the scripture, and his children were very well behaved. And so this was a moral teacher or guide, the father who was able to get his children to mind and send them off into adulthood, um, holding on to Christian values, morals, and guidelines. Now, probably some good things about that, some good ways of helping their children to self-regulate, uh, learn how to fit into society, follow the rules, 
and maybe even hopefully even come to lasting and uh, believing faith through that experience. I'm sure also there were some negative sides of that, possibly heavy-handed ways of getting children to follow the rules, less attention paid to emotions and connection, and more attention paid to following the rules. Uh, Extending from our last podcast episode regarding parenting styles, we might look at the moral teacher or guide as sort of an authoritarian approach to parenting, where it's my way or the highway. You follow these rules, you do it this way, and you're okay. Um, But with little attention paid to emotions and sort of a child-centric look at what the child's experience is like. Now, many of these, or all of these uh, different ways of fathering or being a parent really had a lot to do, and the transition from one to the other tended to have a lot to do with what was going on in our culture, economic factors, environmental factors, um, and many other things leading to the next stages. And so the next stage of what it meant to be a good father was the distant breadwinner stage. And so this really had a lot to do with the Industrial Revolution. So things changed in our culture where fathers um, no longer stayed on the farm uh, with their partner to earn what the the family needed in order to survive, to grow it, to, you know, barter with their neighbors and to survive by um, farming. Instead, factories became the place where fathers worked. And so, so they would be gone all day long while the their partner their mom was home, the mom was home taking care of the kids and so they were distant they were away from the family working in the factory all day long and it meant that meant to be a good father meant that they uh, went and they provided for their family they went, won the bread by going to the factory working being gone all day long they would come home exhausted mom would provide what they needed when it came to food and caretaking of the children but the father did not have much to do with caretaking of the children And honestly, I believe that this distant breadwinner motif is one that is really pretty prevalent today and that many fathers ascribe to, and it's as long as I can be a good breadwinner, then that means that I'm a good father. Now, the second motif, or the third motif, actually, that we move into, I really think of the idea of James Dean when I think of this one. I'm not sure if it's correct or not, but it's this idea of a sex role model or what it means to be a man. And this is what I kind of think of when I think of the toxic masculinity that is being discussed pretty pretty openly and quite commonly in our culture today. And it's this idea of um, machismo, maybe, and I'm strong, I am powerful, um, and I am the leader, or I'm the one in charge of my family and my children, and this manhood type thing of toughness, ruggedness, men don't cry or boys don't cry sense of being. And so this, you know, was a a motif that really developed during, I would say, that 1960s period of time, and it was really focused on the shortcomings of men. And so that's why I think of James Dean, because he was kind of a rebel, and that was the focus that was perpetuated during that time period. How do we make men strong and bold, and what does that mean? Now, I think that this motif also is pretty prevalent yet today, and I even actually heard someone that I was a father of several children recently uh, talking about the wussification of men um, in our culture and how, you know, emotions and softness and all that sort of stuff really isn't what it doesn't have to do with what it means 
to be a man. And so it, I think it is prevalent as well as the distant breadwinner. And so those may be the two most common motifs currently um, happening, but I think we are making a shift from the distant breadwinner and the sex role model motifs to what might be called and what is called by Lamb the new nurturant father. So this idea of the new nurturant father is one in which the father is much more involved in caretaking, um, has lots more interaction with the children, and is involved in a significant ways in household responsibilities, household chores. The thing that I really tend to focus on with this idea of the new nurturant father is the emotional piece that's involved with it. And that's obviously why I did my dissertation on emotional intelligence and parenting style. And I believe that this can actually create a revolution in our culture if we have more and more fathers involved in this new and nurturant way. Now, the challenge is uh, that we don't all agree on that. There are different, definitely different opinions on what it means to be a good father. However, I think if we can find some happy medium here and move more in the direction of greater levels of father involvement, whether they live with their children or not, how do we get those fathers who do not live with their children more involved, more emotionally connected? Because it's that emotional connection that makes the difference in the child's life. Actually, there is research that's quoted in my dissertation that talks about it's, it's not only the presence of the father, um, you know, just physically being there, that makes a difference when it comes to outcomes for children. It's the emotional connection that makes the difference, the emotional relationship. And that's why there is an important connection between the father emotional intelligence and parenting style. And then extending, I would think, needs more research here, but I would think even into, excuse me, uh, outcomes for children who have an emotionally engaged father. So just some other snippets that I think are pretty interesting regarding where we are currently in our culture re, uh, moving towards this idea of the new nurturant father is in 2016, there were 209,000 stay-at-home dads. So there's also this movement, more and more fathers leaving the workforce to be the primary caretaker for children. Maybe their spouse um, or their partner is the one who has, you know, a certain type of education or certain type of skill that allows them to earn a living in a way that makes the family more comfortable. And so they decide, hey, you know what, you're the one who can earn what we need in order to survive, so I'm going to stay home and take care of the kids because that also is a priority, which I find uh, incredibly wonderful that fathers have that opportunity and that moms have the opportunity, if, um, if that's the way it is, to work in the field if they want to um, and be able to kind of balance those things while also caring for the children uh, with a parent that is present and very reliable. So these are the, you know, lots of concepts about what it means to be a father and that shifting view over the course of the last 100 to 150 years. And yet, large segments of our society still seen, you know, living in a, in a, in a way of seeing a good father as a distant breadwinner and a sex role model. And then other large segments of society really moving towards that new nurturant father. And so I think we're in a period of transition. And I would like to offer a couple of different ways that we as fathers, you as mothers even, um, and grandparents, anyone out there listening to this, can be a part of helping with that transition to this new nurturant fatherhood 
And whether it, that's what it's called or not, it doesn't matter. It's more about how do we get fathers engaged with their children as a way to help those children um, be prepared for future success. And if I had to say it in one word, the one word I would use is meekness. I love that word because it's also misunderstood, I think, in our culture. But when you dig down deep into it and find out what meekness means, it is an incredibly powerful idea. So I don't know about you, but often uh, before about five years ago, when I would thought about the word meekness, I thought of this really old white-haired man with a long beard and a crooked wooden cane and really, really fragile. Someone who was barely moving and just barely gingerly walking along and was so fragile that if you went up to him and you poked him in the belly, you might knock him over. But when I did a little bit more reading, and particularly some reading that was a book by Meg Meeker, she described what meekness actually means. And meekness actually is constrained power. And she used the example of a stallion, this incredibly powerful stallion that weighs like 1,500 pounds and can run faster than a car and run, you know, sustain that level of energy for long periods of time. And if you get in his way, he's just going to run right over you. The idea of a stallion who's incredibly powerful, but when you put a bit in his mouth, you can constrain that power. You can control that power. And so that's what I think of when I think of meekness. I think of um, maleness as something that has incredible power energy, excitement, strength, but is constrained by self-control, patience, kindness, goodness, love, all of these things that make a wonderful new nurturant father. Now, a stallion is a wonderful example of that, but I also think of Jesus as maybe the best example or model of what of constrained power. Thinking about this, there's a verse that talks about um, Jesus um, thinking, not seeing the fact that he is God as something to be grasped, but letting go of all of that and becoming human. Actually, God letting go of all of his, of, of all the rights and privileges of being God, becoming human and lowering himself to join us, um, constraining his power so that he could save us and rescue us from the predicament that we are in and that of uh, being in, in enmity with God. And so just another great example, the stallion and Jesus as examples of what it means to be meek. And so I would argue and encourage fathers to search out that meekness, constrained power. How do you identify, acknowledge, honor the power that you have, the strength that you have, and yet constrain it and use it for only good? And so here are some of the ideas that I think how this could be... Um, exercised, particularly with the way that we raise our boys. Number one, value their energy and uniqueness. So you know what? Boys are different than girls, and that's the reality of it. There's tons of energy. They love to wrestle. They love to run and jump, and they have um, physicality that's present in them that just isn't present in girls in the same way that it is in boys. And I think we need to honor that. I think it's um, unfortunate if we think that the new nurturant father or changing manhood or changing toxic masculinity means that boys need to act to get rid of that level of energy. Because I think we need that level of energy in our culture. We need them to be creative, 
in the way that they use that to make new things, to work hard, to build the cities, build the economy, build the homes, build everything, um, be the fathers, the protectors that we need in our culture. But, so that's honoring their energy, but also their uniqueness. So I have a son who is wonderfully athletic, um, incredibly energetic, but he also likes to sew. He loves sewing. We got him a sewing machine for Christmas once, and he's been making pillows um, for the last two years and selling them. He's becoming an entrepreneur, thinking about different ways he can market his product. And sewing is generally just not something that you think of a boy doing. He talks about it openly. He tells his friends about it. And uh, he hasn't been made fun of that. His friends seem to value it. He's used it in a number of ways. And we've attempted to help him to value this unique skill that he's developed and, and been interested in. And so we've valued not only the energy that he has and the athleticness, but also his uniqueness and his interests. I have another son who is a little bit less athletic. He does, does a different types of sports, but loves to read. And we've talked with him about, oh, you'd be a great author because you, you know, you love to read, you love words, you, the words you like are so interesting and you love coming up with stories, you like to draw pictures. And so there's a uniqueness about him also combined with this, in this uh, different level of energy and power that he has. So value their energy, but also their uniqueness. Number two, teach emotional intelligence. Of course, I'm going to talk about emotional intelligence because it was a topic of my dissertation, and it is so important. But teach our sons to be able to read the emotions of other people, be able to perceive what's happening in other people, um, make decisions based on what they see happening in other people, and interact with ways that honors the emotions of those people. How do we do that? By doing it for them. We're able to teach emotional intelligence when we really seek to understand what's happening inside of our sons, validate it, show empathy for it, allow them to express it, even when it's really scary. Many times my sons have expressed anger, frustration, sadness in kind of scary ways, in ways that I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can handle this. But if I'm able to stick with them in it, show empathy, show compassion, and honor those really powerful feelings that they're having, man, then I communicate to them that it's okay. You can feel that. It's okay to feel that. You can even express it even with tears, maybe even better with tears. And that you can be a boy, you can be a man even in the midst of that. So teaching emotional intelligence. And thirdly, really, these are closely related, but also teaching emotional literacy uh, emotional literacy is discussed in the, in the book Raising Cain, and it is described as the ability to identify what one is feeling in the moment, the ability to label it, and the ability to express it. And this really focuses for me on giving them the words of emotions. How do we help our sons to have a word other than angry for what they're feeling? Because if the only word that they have is, I'm angry, then they miss out on a, a lot, much larger emotional expression of their experience and um, even probably the experience of life in some way. So if we can give them the words, um, help them to identify the words, label what they're experiencing and express it, um, then we can help them to become more literate. We can help them to connect more with their future children. 
with their friends, with their spouses, uh, with other men, and set them up for incredible success as they move forward in their lives. So these are just sort of three ways. Value the energy and uniqueness of your sons, teach emotional intelligence, and also help them to learn emotional literacy. Ways that we as parents, as fathers, as pastors, as uh, teachers, grandparents can help to move along a little bit that shift towards that new nurturant father or the shifting view of fatherhood, helping our sons to be um, better fathers than we are, which I think we would all hope for them in the future. I'm sure many of you have seen this new video that came out just a few days ago produced by Gillette, uh, really challenging men to move forward and move beyond this these ideas of the sex role model and the distant breadwinner into a new nurturant fatherhood. Maybe it would be considered a new nurturant manhood if we're thinking in that direction. Um, definitely created lots of discussion, but I think I might post that into our a Facebook group. If you would join us, we could talk about that video and have some discussion that continues from this idea of the shifting view of fatherhood as we move forward. I hope you found this podcast to be helpful. I hope it creates discussion between you and your partner and maybe even shifts that discussion a little bit um, in our culture on what it means to be a good father. Thanks for being here. Hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Connected Family Podcast. We're dedicated to helping you build resilient kids, strong marriages, and connected families. If you'd like to continue the conversation about the shifting view of fatherhood, please join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash groups, the Connected Family Podcast. This group consists of additional resources and discussion regarding episode topics and support for you in building a connected family. You can also follow us on Instagram at Connections Family Counseling or find our website at ConnectionsQuincy.com.